Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxmerl. How you doing? I'm uh, I'm getting by. Yeah. I'm getting by. Yeah. You know? I like that. Yeah. I like that for you. Yeah. I'd like it to be better for you, but I like that you're getting by. <laughs> it would be worse if you weren't. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, you know, <laughs> there's just so many things going on and just so many things to try and how it's almost the end of october i'll never know yeah and then yeah you realize that halloween's coming up and you're like oh i guess they should try on costumes to make sure that they fit and by they i mean my children and myself because we have a couple of cosplays that we're (laughs) uh that you and i are doing that i need to make sure my costume's okay for yeah but but yeah, then it's also, well, we haven't carved pumpkins in years. And so I was like, oh, my youngest was like, my favorite part of Halloween is decorating. And I'm like, is it? Huh. I don't feel like that's a real answer. But OK. And I was like, oh, well, do you want to like carve pumpkins or something? He's like, yes. So I'm like, great. No problem. I can do that. And I'm like, when am I doing that? Mm-hmm. So I have to like, pardon the pun, but I have to carve out some time <laughs> to do that because, of course, I have to do all the gross crap first to prep it so that they can then uh, get them carved, which is a lovely experience. But I'm also like a lot on the a lot on the to do list. I cross one thing off, I add another eight. You know, you know, I was dating someone once around Halloween time, very freshly dating. And one thing we did one night was carve pumpkins. And that was good, clean fun. 
Yeah. Oh, I'm not uh, denying that it's uh, it's not going to be a blast. It's just a case of when's that blast happening? Oh, yeah. No, I was just thinking about, that was yeah. just the last time I think I carved a pumpkin. That was what it was making me think of. And I remember, though, it was very telling. It was very interesting because this was somebody I didn't know very well. And sure. my uh, pumpkin had like two tiny little round eyes and then a very big, like, jagged mouth, right? Sure. And his was like completely symmetrical and beautiful. And I looked at the sure. two of them next to each other and I went, huh, <laughs> different people. Um, yeah. Which was fine, which was totally fine. Didn't work out, doesn't matter. Point is, uh, it really told me a lot about the. It told us a lot about each other. How you carve yeah. a pumpkin. Who knew? Oh, I think that's that would be like a fun first date. I think that was that was maybe our like third or fourth date, I think. It was nice. It was nice. It's too bad that didn't work out. Anyway, <laughs> what can you do? I'm not going to get into it. I don't need to get into the, you know, trials and tribulations of old Ash's dating life. Um, I've done it. It's done. It's rote. It's yeah. rote. Um, yeah. I did see that Drew Barrymore, I, I messaged Christy about this, Drew Barrymore, uh, who of course is an icon, was talking about yes. how she recently got ghosted. And I was like, I know that this shouldn't be my takeaway, but it makes me feel better about my past <laughs> with dating. And my current with dating, for that matter. You know what I mean? Anyway. It, I will never understand uh, uh, a, a dude's not flocking to <laughs> Drew Barrymore? Well, she's very successful, I, and that's very intimidating. So, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. listen, it is what it is. Um, for those of you watching, I'm on my couch, not normally yeah. broadcasting from the couch. I've had a hell of a week. Yeah. It's been a hell of a week. Uh, yeah. We're not going to get into it too much because there's no need, because we, uh, this is an entertainment show. We're here to provide entertainments. Um. But because, you know, people do invest in our lives and, and uh, what we share of them, I will say that my dear sweet Peaches was in the hospital. Uh, she had to undergo a fairly major surgery. It was a, came a little bit out of nowhere. And so it's been harrowing and horrible. <laughs> yeah. And she is recuperating yeah. on the couch and it's more comfortable for her here um, than in the other room where I normally record. So I adjust because that's the kind of mother I am. It is. I was just going to say, because you're a mother. And I want to say this. Mothers, I think, come in different, in different incarnations. Sure. Um, and I will say, you know, for years I've been like, the, the way that I feel like I, I handle the animals, I'm like, I feel like I mother in a way. I feel like I, I definitely mother in a way. I always gave it that caveat. After last night, I mothered. <laughs> yeah. Last night I mothered. I could I could I could weep about it right now. I mothered last night and I just want to I want to say to all the all the mothers of humans mm -hmm. uh that they birth, the mothers of humans that they didn't birth, the mothers of other animals, yeah. all of the above, um anyone who has woken up hourly to check to make sure it's still breathing. Yeah. I see you and we're all here and we're doing great. And what a, yes. what a beautiful thing. You know what I mean? I was, t I was messaging with a friend of mine who is a mother 
today. And I just said, I want you to know. And I was messaging Christy, too. I, the same sentiment. But but there was another one, too, where I was like, I want you to know, I did it one night. And I'm talking, like, in the mud, where it was like, I'm up every hour. Are you still alive? Let's go try and take a pee. Let's clean you up. Are you drooling sure. on yourself? Are you... Is everything... Is the wound dry? All of these things. And I was like, I did it for one night, and I'm a basket case. So for anyone who has been doing this for multiple <laughs> days, weeks, months, years, I commend you. I, I tip my hat. That's what I wanted to say to that. Yeah. And I also want to say to that, today, I uh, I was just like, let's get through today. Let's take one day at a time. Yeah. When a vet says to you, God, I was shocked she got through the first night. It, it, it sobers you. It sobers sure. you. Sure. Sure. You know? Um, she was in that hospital uh, that first night. Anyway, Love is Blind, season three. I found it today on Netflix and I went, this is it. This is exactly what I need. I don't need to think too hard. I can put it on. I can sit on the couch with my recovering patient. I can be giving her brother Fox some attention because he's not <laughs> handling this well. He's very <laughs> jealous. I'm doing my best. Um, Sharky. Really a caretaker to me right now. He's really just trying to, he's trying to love on me all, the best that he can. Fox is trying to push her out of the bed. Uh, again, there's a lot of dynamic. The mothers of multiples. Yeah. I see you also is yeah. my point. But anyway, mm -hmm. I find Love is Blind on Netflix and I go, I could have cried. I was like, this is, ex it's brand new. This is exactly what I want. This is exactly it. I want to lay here like a piece of trash. I want to yeah. eat trash and I want to watch trash. <laughs> yep as Christy said earlier Just a full raccoon day <laughs> yeah that's all, I, that's all I wanted yeah you earned it I thank you and when I got to the end of episode four it went it, that was it they're, they're piecing it out now and here mm. here's the thing Netflix has employed me they've employed me and for that I am very thankful I appreciate what they do I got one note, Netflix. You made us this way, okay? Yes. I want a full season. I want to be a, a complete piece of shit on this couch. I want to watch no fewer than 10, ideally 13, yeah. but no fewer than 10 episodes of something today. And I wanted it to be new. Yeah. And when you cut me off at four, that was like I was an addict saying, please, sir, can I have some more? I just, they made us this way. And they're doing it with yeah. Unsolved Mysteries now, too. They're piecing them out. Three mm -hmm. episodes every week for three weeks, right? Yeah. And they did this. Netflix was, the, weren't they the first ones to put all of it at once? And then we're, 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 we're getting the binge. We're, we're in it. And now they're taking it away. And on one hand, I want on the business, the business part of my brain goes, oh, I see you. Brilliant work. But the emotional side of me wants to say, I haven't slept. and I just want 10 episodes of the garbage show that you fed to me that I can't get enough of because it is the greatest of the reality shows right now. If you ask me. Don't do this to us. Yeah. Think of the mothers. Okay. That's my yeah. plan. I'm drinking some Prosecco, everybody, and we're doing the best we can. <laughs>
Oh, I think you're doing great. I appreciate that. It's, uh, yeah, look, I, I, if you told me when we were kids that we could have like an entire show, we could watch it any time we wanted to, we could watch it, like all of that, I wouldn't believe you, but I would be like, I can't wait to be an adult. And then I would get a time machine and go back and go, please wait to grow up. <laughs> it's a trap. It's a trap. That was a Star Wars but, reference. That was a Star Wars reference. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I mean that's kind of familiar. It doesn't matter. Again, I I think I've only seen one of them. Going to get hate for that. Uh, but it's just when you've got us to a point yeah. that we're used to it yeah. this way. Just please let it continue this way. If it's And I yeah. understand there are shows that come out and the second it's done, like, here's your 10 episodes or whatever, and people watch the 10 and then immediately go, when's the next one coming out? Yeah. We want more. I get what a kick in the face that must be. 100%. To put in all of this work, have it in a day, and people be like, oh my God, like, where's more? You need to give me more. And it's like, no, let them, like, they gave you the full season. Enjoy the season. Let it go. Wait until the next stuff. It's it's when they don't do the full season at once. And I want to be clear. If we're talking about a yeah. Star Wars joint, if we're talking about a Mandalorian, a, a you know, Book of Boba Fett, <laughs> piece it out for me. Those shows take years to make. And I don't, that's something that I do want to eat slowly. Do you know what I mean? That's something that it's sure. like, I'm happy to get that. Don't let me, don't let me get a tummy ache from that. Because, and I want to respect the work. Like, it's like, yes, that's so much work and so much time. Please give it to me. Sure. And this is not a shade to Love is Blind, but I'll say it. It's not the same production value. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little different. You know what I'm saying? When you've been giving it to us, and maybe they did this originally with Love is Blind too. I, I may have come to it late. Maybe they've always done it this way. But I guess for me, just in general, I feel like the the Netflix model before was here you go kids it was you know what it was it was leaving the bucket of candy on the front step and saying help yourself and then you choose and then you choose how you put your hand in that bucket i (laughs) i like a lot of things Mm -hmm. um uh you did some enunciation over there and that's you know one of my favorite things it makes me laugh so hard um and also i love it's like a bucket of candy that says help yourself and it's your choice when you get in that bucket i agree i agree because there's times in my life there would be a different time in my life for example if the entire season three of love is blind came out that I would piece it out. There would be different times in my life. But but I think sure. what was nice about it was was having the choice that it was like you can either piece it sure. out or if you're having a hellscape of a week, you can <laughs> you can give yourself the gift of watching it in one yeah. sitting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Mm. I get that. But alas. Again, I'm just uh, yes, I agree certain shows should just give the entire season. Yeah. Make it, like, just, it's the nicest way 
for the love of God, please. Um, and look, um, Stranger Things, they brought it out in two chunks. They didn't used to do that, season. though, did they? No, they brought the whole thing out before. Thank but you. these ones, this most recent season, some of the episodes were like two and a half hours long. So at that point, I was happy they broke it up only because I wanted to binge it before the internet spoiled it for me. Right. Because I have to go. And, and I and I know what you say is like, well, then just don't do certain things. Well, I have to go on. I'm on social media so much to post things and do things for the show. So I wasn't going to get away from seeing any spoilers. So I wanted to make sure. So I'm like, I want to watch it all. And I wouldn't be able to watch it all if there was like 12 plus hours of it. I mean, I could try, but. No, that may, but again, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I don't want to, again, I don't yeah. want to disrespect the people who make reality television. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm not saying it's less than at all. What I'm saying it is less than is it's just less production value. It's less work. These aren't two and a yes. half hour long Stranger Things episode. That's a different story because you're yes. still getting more content. If the episodes were longer, yeah. if you're giving me two and a half hour long episodes of Love is Blind, which by the way, hook it to my veins, I'll take it, um, I wouldn't <laughs> complain. Yeah. I wouldn't complain. Because also a lot of the reality shows have gone to that. 90 Day is two hours now. I think Married at First no Sight kidding. is gone to two hours now. So again, maybe what I'm saying huh. is, is that if you're going to do this Netflix, make them longer. Give us more. Let us have some more. Sure. Sure. Because you don't know who needs it when. And that's it. And sometimes yeah. it's a bomb. You know? I get it. I get it. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, I used to uh, with, oh, God, which one? I think that was my middle one. Uh, we had a TV and a DVD player set up in my in our baby's room and so when to do feedings in the night, I would go in and put in my ER DVD so I could get through the series and sit and watch good old Doug Ross. Yep. Whatever you need to do to, to get by because you can't fall asleep. Yeah. Got to stay up, make sure you're fully awake and an episode of ER is going to do that for you. Absolutely. Well, again, yeah. I respect it. Now, yeah. now that I've had that very long rant, um, yeah. Christy has some updates for us. I do. On some past cases we've talked about on the show. Yeah. It's, uh, to quote you from earlier, it's been a week. Yeah. Uh, when I was making these notes days ago, um, there was an update popped up. And I was like, hey, we have mentioned that on the show. I should give uh, the update. So I wrote a little thing. I was like, great. And then like a day goes by and there's an update about something else. And I was like, that's wild. That's weird. Uh, so I got that all prepared. And then I sent Lauren, like, here's the outline of tonight. And here you go. And she's like, oh, you got a couple of updates? And I was like, actually, I found another one since then. I love it's, this. It's a wild week. It's a wild week. So, first one up. Uh, it's an update from our Missing Kentucky episode. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to recap uh, the case 
for those who maybe haven't listened yet or maybe don't recall because we mention a lot of names on this show. Uh, 35-year-old Crystal Rogers was last seen July 3rd, 2015. Her boyfriend, uh, Brooks Houck, told police that Crystal was on her phone playing games when he went to bed. Right. She, but she was gone when he woke up the next morning. Crystal's car was not in the driveway. Two days later, on July 5th, Crystal's car was found with a flat tire parked near mile marker 14 on the Bluegrass Parkway in Bardstown, Kentucky. Crystal's keys were in the ignition and her cell phone and purse were in the car. 16 months after her disappearance, her father, Tommy Ballard, was shot during a hunting trip with his 12-year-old grandson. Police cleared the child of foul play, and they determined that Tommy's death was not a suicide. Tommy was 54 at the time of his death, which remains unsolved. No sign of Crystal has been found to this day. Well, on October 17th, 2022, the FBI executed a search warrant for the 245-acre farm where Crystal Rogers was last seen. The farm is about nine miles or 14 kilometers south of downtown Bardstown. It is owned by Rosemary Houck, the mother of Crystal's then-boyfriend, Brooks. Police have searched the property three times since 2015. After the initial search, Crystal's father, Tommy, asked the Houck family if he could search the farm with cadaver dogs. They said no. Fourteen months later, the property was searched again. Uh, Eighteen cadaver dogs and more than two dozen investigators searched over the span of two days. Investigators said they found items of interest, which were towed away. Towed? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The FBI took over the case in 2020 and first searched the farm in August of that year. In August 2021, they searched homes that were built by Brooks Construction Company. Right. FBI did not disclose what was found during the search. However, they did admit to finding an item of interest. That's right. Um, It was recovered from the concrete of one of the homes. As of now, they are searching the farm again. No word as to why they executed this search warrant. Hopefully they are on track to getting it solved in some way. They have to have something good to get that search warrant. Yes, they do. So hopefully we are headed in the right direction. Uh, But a shout out to our dear listeners, Melinda and Becky, because they shared that update with us over on Twitter. Amazing. Uh, We also, there's a second update about Kristen Smart. Oh. Uh, I touched on that case briefly. I believe it was during the Kristen Modafferi. Yes, that's uh, right. Episode of the show. So, for those who may not recall, Kristen Smart was a 19-year-old student at California Polytech State University. On May 25th, 1996, Kristen went missing after an off-campus party around 2 a.m., Fellow student Paul Flores told police he walked with Kristen as far as his dorm, but then they parted ways. Kristen's friends told police that Kristen was intoxicated and that Paul had repeatedly offered to walk her alone to her dorm. Kristen has not been seen since, and she was declared legally dead in 2002. 
while in early 2021, police executed search warrants and brought cadaver dogs to the home of Paul's father, Ruben Flores. Police found a six-foot by four-foot anomaly in the ground in the backyard that alerted the cadaver dogs. Bloodstains and fibers that matched Kristen's clothing were also found. Paul was arrested and charged with murder during a rape or attempted rape, and Reuben was arrested and charged with being an accessory after the fact. Investigators believe that Reuben helped to hide Kristen's remains under the backyard deck of his home and that they have since moved the body. <sighs> Their trial began in July 2022, and on October 18th, 2022, a jury found Paul Flores guilty of first-degree murder. Paul, who is now 45, faces 25 years to life in prison. Wow. A separate jury found Paul's father, 81-year-old Reuben, not guilty. Interesting. Of being an accessory. Kristen remains have still not been found. Wow. But I kudos to them for getting a guilty conviction there. With no body. It's, well, uh, to quote T. Swift, no body, no crime. Um, it's very difficult. Yeah. 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 Oh, and again, because it's been a big week in true crime. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, one more for you. We discussed this uh, during the Rennie Joes episode of the show. Uh, I mentioned the case of 17-year-old Brittany Drexel from Rochester, New York, Brittany went missing April 25th, 2009, during a trip to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for spring break. Her phone last pinged near the South Santee River between McClellanville and Georgetown. Ten years later, police were able to track her phone better and were able to determine she entered a vehicle and ended up in Georgetown County area. Police found a promising suspect in 62-year-old Raymond Douglas Moody, and in April 2022, they convinced Moody's girlfriend to wear a wire and ask him about Brittany. Moody claimed Brittany got into his car voluntarily and that he drove her to a campsite where they smoked pot. Moody then suggested to Brittany that they have sex. She, of course, said no. Uh... He didn't like that, so he sexually assaulted her, <sighs> then strangled her, wrapped her body in a blanket, and hid her body in the woods. He returned to the site later on and buried Brittany's body in a second location. Police approached Moody with this newly learned information, and he told them where Brittany's body was buried. Her remains were found in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in May 2022. Moody was subsequently arrested and on October 19th, 2022, Moody pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping. For first-degree murder, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was also given two consecutive 30-year sentences for criminal sexual assault and kidnapping. So I guess he just wanted to avoid a trial by sp outright... At saying he was guilty, like by pleading, pleading guilty, yes, instead of going through the the song and dance. But you know, how does that conversation go? You're wearing a wire. You're like, I guess I yeah. gotta ask my boyfriend, my current boyfriend, Ugh. about this woman, 
And then he offers up that information. Can you imagine? That, no, because I'm not taking. Brittany is the ultimate victim. No one is even close to being the victim For that sure. Brittany is in this situation. Not even close. But God, whoever that that girlfriend was of him, like a victim yeah. too. You oh, know, yeah, I can't imagine. Not not, not in the same respects, that. but Jesus, that is just. I can't imagine being like because of course, if it were me, of course I would also be like. Yes, police, I will wear a wire. Yes, I will help you in any, any way I can. If there's enough s- substantial evidence to say that this guy has a part of this, was a part of this. But can you imagine having to sit there and be like, oh, oh, and then you did what? Oh, of course. Oh, sure. Okay. I, like, oh my I cannot God. believe he was so open with her about it. It's chilling. It really is. And yeah, I would have just been like, okay, and then he'll kill me now that I know. Yeah, that's what I would have thought the whole time. So because I don't even know what nature of your relationship, what the nature of your relationship would have to be for you to be that open. Yeah, I don't know. It is possible that it was just it's been enough time. He's an old man and he was just like, yeah, I'll come clean. I'm done. (sighs) Yeah, I guess. Well, but I mean, still an asshole. I mean, I'm glad he did, obviously, but I just I feel for that woman because I feel like that's like. Now she has to wear that too. You know what I mean? Like now there's like uh, another yeah. person that's has to wear a part of it, which is again too bad. Um oh yeah. I also want to know how long were they together? Great question. Because that's another good that's another good point. If it was someone that was a relatively new situation, that would probably sure I would assume still traumatizing, but not, sure. you know, as extreme as if this was someone that perhaps you had been with for, you know, a year or two or more. That would be obviously far yes. worse to hear like, oh, and then you, oh, oh well, are, are you hearing this police? Like, you know, that's. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what if they were together at the time? Great question. Oh, oh. what a nightmare. What a nightmare. And then it's like, would she in that moment be like. And have you done this to anyone else since then? Well, if it were me, I would. But oh, I'd I'd be so skeptical of anything you said. But that's the problem, right? Like, we don't need to like look. It goes without saying that if someone has committed any crime that is adjacent yeah. to this this level yes. of crime, we're not talking yeah. about a theft. We're talking about a sure. violent, horrific crime. Uh, yes. I, you know, I wouldn't, it doesn't matter what they admit to or don't, because it's like, how do you trust anything that person says? If you can commit that crime and go about the rest of your life like nothing happened, yeah, I'm never, whether you tell me I, you're innocent or guilty or never did it again, it kind of yeah. is irrelevant, because I would be like, I'm going to assume. We had that case, yeah. I can't remember which one, they all blend together, where the, where the person yes. was like, they do it once, they don't get caught, they're going to do it again. I think there's truth to that. Yeah. Oh, and that's the thing. This guy got caught decades before, like in the 80s or that's something. That's right. He, he did jail time for a similar crime on a minor and then got out and just lived his life and did it again. Almost makes you think he should have stayed in jail for life when he did that kind of Almost crime on a minor. Almost makes you think. Doesn't it? Uh, life without parole should have meant it. Almost yeah. makes you think. Almost makes you think. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for those updates. 
Yeah. What a wildly busy week in the true crime world. You're right. My goodness. I yeah. guess it's maybe maybe the moon cycles. We're coming up to Halloween. Ah, uh, Maybe there's something going on with that. This is the energy everyone's going to get for the rest yeah. of the episode. Just buckle in, people. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I'm unhinged. I'm absolutely unhinged. There may have been yeah. times I said I was unhinged before and I thought I was. I wasn't. I know it now. It's a new level. It's, it's a new, it's just a it's new, good. it's a deeper level of unhinged. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, listen, before we continue, what are you drinking over there? Yeah. Oh, um, I'm, I'm just doing a water and a Coke. Listen, I'm drinking Prosecco again. Yeah. I'm two glasses in. I don't remember. Maybe three. Who knows? Uh, I need this. Yes. <laughs> I'm drinking. Why do you think I did go? Really? Another one? Because that's also not my style. <laughs> not your style. Not either of our styles. But no, it's because no. it's because it's it's taking the edge off. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel drunk. Yeah. I just feel a little loopy, if that makes sense. Loose and buzzy. Loose and buzzy, baby. And that's an yeah. improvement. We're doing great. <laughs> We're doing great. Yeah. It's been a tough week, guys. All, it's uh, been a people, lot. All jokes aside, it has been. So, uh, but I'm glad to be here. Yeah. I'm glad to be here. Be here doing this. This brings me joy. So let's all, let's all do it together. Yeah. Yeah. Ramon Navarro. Did I pronounce it correctly? I've been saying Navarro, but I think you could go either way. What did I say? <laughs> I thought I said what you said. <laughs> oh wow, this is bad. I, th- I think you said Navarro. Navarro. Like like Dave. Like Dave Navarro. Yeah. Easy. There you Easy. go. There we go. I'm sorry. I should have put that in the No, notes. no, no. It's fine. It's just I love that I said it and then you said it back to me and I was like, I thought I said the exact same thing, but I don't. What is that from? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> is that movie or something where it's, they say something and then he's, well, I'm saying what you're saying. And it's. Yes, it is. It goes it on. Is. It just keeps going on. And it's like, no, that's not. That's not it at all. And then they say it, and they say it back, and then they're like, I'm just saying what you're saying. That's right. I can't. We'll think of it by the end of this. That, that is a scene. It is also me yeah. in any voice record I do, because I'm also, I'll am i say something, and then they'll look at me, and I'm like, is it Canadian? Did I pull out, is it a Canadian? Did I do that? <laughs> Tell me how you would say it. Harbor. Harbor. <laughs> I had one recently. I'm going to spell the word for you. You tell me how you'd pronounce it. Ready? Okay. Okay. I'm going to even write it down. Yep. Yep. T-R-E-A-T-I-S-E. Treaties? See, I would say treaty. Oh, sure. I think, but I think that may be me being en français. Oh, yeah. I I did uh, shitty in en français. (laughs) No, but uh, 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 but uh, I think, but it, still, you said it closer to how I did because I think that the way they wanted me to say it was treatise. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> but this is the difference. This is the difference between yeah, the uh, America. And I respect it. Listen, we pronounce things differently. We pronounce sure. things. We pronounce things differently. You know, it happens. But it's wow. it, I don't have a problem. I'm like, I'll say things however, however, the the whatever the person in the that moment, if it's for work. Sure. If it's just in sure. if it's just in conversation and someone corrects me, I don't care for that. But if it's for no. work, I'll do it however the person wants me to do it. But but um 
It always makes me laugh when I just see puzzled faces and then I just go, Canadian? Is that a Canadian? Probably. It's probably That's amazing. It makes me think of uh, when Benedict Cumberbatch uh, narrated that documentary about penguins, but he never once says the word penguin properly. How does he say it? The whole entire time he says penguin. Penguin? Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's... Shut up. he was on uh, the Graham Norton show, which I adore because I love Graham Norton. Um, and they were showing clips of it. And the further it gets in, in, into the documentary, the more wild it gets. So it, it starts with like penguin. And you're like, oh, it kind of, that maybe almost sounds like penguin. And then all of a sudden it's like penguin. Like he goes <laughs> so far the other way. And, and Graham has this great moment where he's just like, like, you're not alone when you're recording these things. There's other people around who can hear you, right? And he's like, just nobody corrected me. And it's like, oh, you got to correct even Benedict. You got to correct but them. This is, when they say penguin, this, it's pretty amazing. But this is what I always say. It's like when you see a movie and it's it's a very big star and they're further into their career and it's terrible. I always say, I'm like, that's a director that's afraid to give a note. That's what it is. And I think that's the yeah. same thing. Oh, yeah. I've just, and the joke is, if it was just a random documentary, okay, but it was about penguins and he has to say it so many times. Penguin. It's, it, it's, um, it's even, pretty is amazing. That how the, is that how... Here, dear listeners, here's a question to you. Is that how you in the UK would say penguin? It is not. Because <laughs> I could see it is penguin. I could see that. Sure. Yeah. Oh, even even Graham was like, what are you doing? <laughs> what was that? He's like, like you, how, how did anybody let this happen? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty great. I love it. I've pulled up an yeah. audio of how the U.S. Oh, is supposed to pronounce the word I spelled. Of course. Treatise. No. <laughs> right? Well, this makes me feel better. I feel like back home, it's like, we don't. We certainly don't say that. I thought it was treaty. No. I would take, how did you pronounce it? Uh, I think I said treatise. Well, that's how they just said it. Or no. No, you said it some other way. Didn't I? Treaties. Tr- I, think, treaties. I think I said treaties. Yeah. yeah, that's how I would say it. No, well, I said it how I would say it. The point is, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> different strokes rule the world. Yeah. We're going to get into the episode, guys. People. <laughs> We're everywhere. We're everywhere yeah. and nowhere. Yep. Because you're everywhere, everywhere to, me. to me. Ramon Navarro. There you go. Ramon Navarro was an actor during the golden age of Hollywood known for the flying fleet Matahari, and Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. Unlike a lot of actors at the time, Ramon made a successful transition from silent films, going to add 64 credits to his name. But since Hollywood is fickle, Ramon went from being one of MGM's biggest stars to often struggling to find work. And by the 1960s, he had almost backed away from the business entirely. But on October 31st, 1968, Ramon was found brutally beaten in his own home, and while the house was lo- and while the house looked ransacked, nothing of value was taken. So, who committed this horrible crime? And if it wasn't part of a robbery, then what was the real motive? And how did the perps get caught? Christy Oxborough investigates. 
You bet your ass she does. <laughs> I don't. It's contagious. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I've, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but I've, I've had, I mean, I have not come close to your journey this week, but I'm, I'm on another journey uh, that you and I have discussed. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Mentally, uh, falling apart. Yeah. Just falling apart. Everything's fine. Uh, oh, so disclaimer Yep. off the top. Uh, this episode will contain mentions of alcohol abuse, suicide, and rape. So trigger warning for those who need it. Also, my early apologies if I mispronounce anything. Spanish is not my first, second, or third language. I only have one, to be honest. Uh, so just know I'm going off what the internet has told me. So we're all just doing our best here. Uh, I even specifically would type in a name and be like, pronounce. And then they're like, oh, here's the American way. And I go, no, 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 no. What's the Spanish way? I need to do it. I need pronounce. Yeah. Treatise. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I can honestly say during this week, no matter what I asked uh, the internet to pronounce, I never once yelled no back at it. <laughs> that was my first time. So of course. I'm glad we got that on film we didn't Stop. digital film didn't get it yeah good god she's a mess so mariano nicholas somoniego was born in 1871 he attended high school in las cruces new mexico and later studied at a dental school at the university of pennsylvania during a business trip to durango mexico mariano met maria leonor gavilon Leonor was a talented singer who had been taking singing lessons since she was seven years old. Since both Mariano and Leonor came from prominent families, their meeting quickly turned into a courtship, which resulted in their wedding on October 24th, 1892. Mariano was 21 and Leonor was 20 at the time. Soon after Mariano graduated from dental school, the couple settled down in Durango on the Calle de... Negrete, Mariano opened a dental office in the mid-1890s and soon gained a reputation as one of the best dentists in town. In 1895, the couple welcomed their first child, Emilio. Over the next 15 years, the couple added 12 more children. I tip my hat. <laughs> yeah. Which included Guadalupe, Rosa, Ramon, Leonor, Mariano, Maria de la Luz, Anto Antonio, Jose, Felipe, Carmen, Angel, and Eduardo. Eduardo, specifically, was the last to arrive in 1911. The idea of just basically being pregnant for a, over a decade. Bless that woman. Yeah. Uh, at the time, Mexico had a high infant and child mortality rate, and sadly, Felipe died from diphtheria at the age of three, and Emilio died from scarlet fever at just four. But the main topic of today's episode is the Somoniego's fourth child, Ramon Hill, who was born February 6th, 1899, and while his birth certificate 
lists his name as Ramon Hill Somoniego. According to multiple sources, he was baptized with 14 names. I do not know the list of names, and it's for the best, because, oh, I would butcher those unintentionally so, but um, it's for the best. Uh, possibly because Ramon became the oldest surviving male child in the family, Leonor focused a lot of her attention on him. She began teaching Ramon the piano when he was just six years old. Soon after, he gave his first performance at his grandmother's birthday party, reciting a poem by Ramon de Campomore. In early 1910, Mariano developed facial uh, neuralgia, uh, which is a chronic pain condition that affects the, oh boy, trigeminal nerve, uh, which carries sensation from the face to the brain. Mariano suffered through multiple surgeries, each of which removed facial nerves, causing a severe impairment of his optic nerves. Mariano had to close his dental practice and soon began teaching English at the Instituto Juarez. The family struggled financially, and with inflation and unemployment surging at the time, soon there were protests, which led to a revolution. In May 1911, rebels and bandits attacked Durango, and in February 1913, a second wave of attacks occurred, causing Durango to be one of the first state capitals to fall. Businesses and homes were ransacked, schools were closed, entire districts were burned, innocent bystanders were killed— uh, by stray bullets. So for the safety of their family, the Somoniego family left Durango and headed to Mexico City, where Ramon was enrolled at the Instituto Cientifico de Mexico. Wowza! That one was a lot. Again, I am so sorry. You're doing great. Uh, months later, a counter-revolution broke out and news arrived that conditions in Durango had approved. So Mariano returned home to check on the possessions that they had left behind. Ramon, Angel, and Eduardo accompanied him. Soon after they arrived, fighting increased, and Durango was cut off from all outside communication. Leonor and the other Somoniega children waited 11 months before they could hear whether or not the rest of their family had survived. Woof. They had, and they all reunited in the spring of 1915. Ramon's sisters, Rosa, Guadalupe, and Leonor, decided to enter a convent, and Ramon briefly considered becoming a priest. But soon he let go of that potential dream after seeing a poster for Menon at the Old Metropolitan Opera. But as fighting continued in the country, schools again were closed, and Mariano and Leonor decided it would be best to send their children to live with relatives in the United States. So in September 1916, Ramon and his brother Mariano, who were 17 and 15 respectively at the time, got on a train to Texas. But a third of the way into the trip, the train stopped in the small town of Escalon as the bridge ahead of them had been destroyed. But since the bridge leading back had also been destroyed, the travelers were all stranded for multiple days as they waited for bridge builders to arrive to fix the wow. bridges. The brothers decided to walk back to Durango, which was 276 miles or 444 kilometers south. 
After returning home, Ramon, Mariano, and a friend all decided to head north, this time taking a different route. They eventually made it to El Paso, Texas, where they met with relatives. Rosa Guadalupe and their sister Leonor remained at the convent uh, as the remainder of the Somoniego family arrived in November 1917, only to learn that the boys had headed to California without telling anyone. They arrived in Los Angeles in November 1916 for Ramon's sudden dream of entering show business. They lived with an uncle before moving into their own place a year later. Ramon got cast as an extra in a movie, but it did not lead to the immediate success that he had hoped for. Ramon worked as an usher at Tally's Theater in Clune's audition, uh, auditorium and was also an usher and bit player at the Majestic Theater. In the summer of 1918, choreographer Marion Morgan picked Ramon for the ballet Attila and the Huns. Ramon headed to New York for rehearsals and then toured with the show throughout Canada and the northern United States. The rest of the Somoniego family moved to Los Angeles in August 1918. Ramon returned to L.A. the following June and went back to work at the Majestic. In the summer of 1919, Ramon worked as a busboy at the Alexandria Hotel, which was known for its very famous clientele, such as legendary director D.W. Griffith. At one point, Ramon approached Griffith and asked for an audition. Griffith agreed to see Ramon the following day at his office. So the following day, Ramon shows up at the studio and waited for hours, but Griffith never saw him. Ramon showed up every day for the next two weeks and waited hours every day to see him. And Griffith finally agreed to see him. Ramon performed a scene of his own writing, and Griffith ordered a camera test. However, Griffith never gave any report following the test. Soon after, Griffith returned to Long Island and never reached out to Ramon, who later said, quote, I sometimes wonder if there was really any film in the camera. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Uh, Ramon didn't land a movie role until late 1920 in Mr. Barnes of New York. However, it was a very small role. His character was killed minutes into the movie. However, his character's death is the catalyst for the main plot of the movie. So that's something. Uh, it was Ramon's first official billing, although he was credited as Ramon Somoniegos, with an S on the end. At the time, Ramon was a big believer in numerology, and he felt that the added S uh, would, according to author uh, Andre Suarez, quote, give his name the cosmic vibrations of the master number 11. Okay. A year later, Ramon was put on the radar of director Rex Ingram, who it is believed chose Ramon as a direct competition to Rudolph Valentino, a famous actor nicknamed the Latin Lover, who was known in Hollywood to be difficult to work with. Valentino would later die from sepsis in August 1926 at the age of 31. Ingram believed that Ramon had the looks and talent to, to rival Valentino, so Ramon was cast in The Prisoner of Zenda in November 1921. But Ingram and the studio believed that for Ramon to be more appealing to the American public, it would be you needed to make his name more easily pronounceable. So starting in April 1924, Ramon would start to be known as Ramon Navarro. 
Fun fact! According to the Internet Movie Database, Ramon was close friends with a man named Gabriel Navarro. He even chose to use Gabriel's last name as his stage name. However, a secretary made a typing error, and Ramon was known as Navarro N.O., as opposed to Navarro with N.A. But what makes this a fun fact? We don't know who Gabriel Navarro is. Well, I'll tell you who he is. He is the grandfather of Dave Navarro, whose beautiful face you may recall from such bands as Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I recall it. And speaking of Dave Navarro, did you know that in March 1983, Dave's mother, 41-year-old Connie Navarro, and her friend, 42-year-old Sue Jory, were fatally shot by Connie's ex-boyfriend, John Riccardi? No. Dave was 15 at the time. Um, I'm also putting a pin in this. Uh, Dave also said he was supposed to... His parents were divorced at the time. He was supposed to stay at his mom's house that night and at the last minute chose to go stay at his dad's. Whoa. And it's one of those, like, he has forever wondered, could he have stopped? Could he have done something? And I'm just like, oh, sweetie, at 15, you probably would have been shot, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's the whole thing is heartbreaking. Uh, Riccardi went on the run, and the case was aired on America's Most Wanted. He was finally captured in 1991 after a viewer tipped police off to his whereabouts. Riccardi was found guilty and sentenced to death row in 1994. In July 2012, Riccardi's death sentence was overturned, and he was resentenced to life in prison without parole. But back to the show. Yep. Also, the idea that Dave was going through all of that in the 90s, well, making music and acting like none of that's going on. Like, I I can't imagine. Yeah. You know? It's wild. It's insane. Uh, so, director Rex Ingram would go on to cast Ramon in another four pictures, including Trifling Women and Scaramouche, which officially made Ramon a star. He got his first full lead role in Ingram's Where the Pavement Ends. During filming, there was talk of the new upcoming film called Ben-Hur. Ingram thought for sure he was going to be asked to direct it. He was not. Uh, And while it was a crushing blow for him, in June 1924, Ramon received word he had been chosen to play the title role of Ben-Hur himself. Clarification side note! There have been numerous versions of Ben-Hur over the years, including a recent something one, one as recent as 2016. The one featuring Ramon Navarro was released in 1925. It is also referred to as Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. But likely the most famous version was the one released in 1959. It was over three and a half hours long and starred Charlton? Charlton? Fuck. Charlton. Thank you, Charlton Heston. Making it through the Spanish ones better than I'm doing through the English ones at this point. Uh, That version uh, with Mr. Heston is how I'm going to go for it from now. Mm -hmm. uh, Won 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, both Best and Supporting Actor, and Cinematography. Uh, This movie was actually mentioned in Episode 73 
Dr. Feelgood. Because he was on he was on set pumping people up to I'm sure he was. Because the uh it was a it was a really long shoot. Yeah. Well, when you're working with a three and a half hour long movie, you're, it's gonna be long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, production of the earlier Ben-Hur began in the su- summer of 1924 and was plagued with issues from the start. There were issues with the cast and with insurance for the nearly 50 horses that they needed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, a fire at a property warehouse destroyed one of the sets. The cost of production went through the roof. In the end, the film cost nearly $4 million to make. At the time... The average film cost about $160,000. Wow. It was the most expensive silent film ever made until The Artist in 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, The director shot over 1 million feet of film. No. And in the end, they used about 12,000. The move, the movie was nearly two and a half hours long. It was given a limited release well over a year before its official premiere in August 1926. It wasn't opened nationwide until October 1927, but it managed to be a full sensation, setting audience records around the world. In the first four years, Ben-Hur earned more than $4.3 million domestically and $5 million internationally. Wow. But soon after, on October 6, 1927, Warner Brothers released The Jazz Singer, which was the first feature-length movie picture with talking, which is why this new style of film was referred to as the talkies. I find it to be a silly word, and I hate to use it, but there we go. Um, Not to be confused with the Neil Diamond film of the same name, which was released in 1980. Yeah. Uh, The release of the first talkie uh, was a sign that the silent film era was coming to an end. Ramon started vocal training to help improve his diction in case talkies actually became the norm. And spoiler alert, they did. Yes. Um, Then February 9th, 1929 marked the release of Gold Braid, which was later renamed The Flying Fleet. Author Andre Suarez referred to it as, quote, the Top Gun of its day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, although I bet it lacks an intense half-naked, half-denim beach volleyball scene. <laughs> that was <laughs> Which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, right? Uh, it was Ramon's most praised movie since Ben-Hur. Ramon was on top of the world, but sadly, less than two weeks later, on February 22nd, Ramon's younger brother, Jose, died from cancer at the age of 23. Oh. For some reason... The cause of death that was given to the press was, quote, injuries suffered in a football game at Berkeley two years prior. What? Yeah, I don't get it. Uh, A month later, Ramon traveled with his family to Europe, where he hoped to fulfill his longstanding dream of being an opera singer by performing at the Berlin Philharmonic. But sadly, it never came to fruition. And things continued on a downward spiral for Ramon, as during this time, his long-term relationship with Herbert Howe had come to an end. Although most people in Hollywood didn't even know the men were dating, um, it all became too much for Ramon, and his drinking went from social to kind of out of hand, and things were about to get worse. In April 1930, Ramon purchased a car in Michigan, 
Days later, he was called and told that his check had bounced. Ramon didn't believe it, as he had just cleared $125,000 for his latest project. But when he checked the bank, there was only $160 in his account. It turns out that Louis Samuel, Ramon's personal assistant, had been abusing his position. When Ramon was busiest with work, he gave Louis power of attorney over his finances. And Lewis decided to take advantage of this by transferring money from Ramon's account to an account belonging to Lewis's brother, who was a stock market investor. Turns out, Lewis's brother lost a ton of money in the stock market crash in October 1929, and this was Lewis's way of helping out. Lewis also used Ramon's money to pay for the mortgage on his new house, which had been designed by Franklin Lloyd Wright Jr. Oh, wow. But instead of pressing charges... Ramon chose to just take Lewis's house as his own. I don't know how much in total that Lewis took, but it is several hundred thousands of dollars. Wow. Ramon was left struggling financially, so he took a role in the MGM film Call of the Flesh, which turned out to be MGM's fourth most successful film in 1930. At the time, studios believed that audiences would be turned off from attending a movie if it had subtitles, so they would spend a ton of money to refilm the most popular movies in different languages. For the Spanish-language version Call of, of Call of the Flesh, Ramon not only starred in it, he also directed it and wrote the Spanish-language lyrics. Oh, wow. Ramon's uncle adapted the script into Spanish, and Ramon's mother, Leonor, played the role of the mother superior in the film. Wow. It was called... Sevilla de uh, Sevilla de Mi Amor. During filming on September 13, 1930, Ramon was in a car accident. He crashed into a vehicle driven by Harold Wisdom at the Wilshire Boulevard intersection, about five miles or eight kilometers from downtown Los Angeles. Five other people were in Ramon's vehicle at the time, but the names of three have never been made public. Ramon claimed he had just met them at the party, and he didn't even know their names. A week later, Ramon was served with a $50,000 lawsuit by Harold Wisdom, alleging Ramon was driving recklessly, and the crash caused him to have such severe back injuries that he was unable to drive long distances for work. Ramon took it to court, where Ramon's lawyer produced a film that showed Harold Wisdom playing baseball, rowing a boat, horseback riding. Harold was called to the stand. He claimed his doctor requested he perform those activities to help with his healing process. Oh, please. In the end, Harold was awarded just $700 to cover the cost of damages to his vehicle. And I don't know why, but I'm absolutely fascinated by the detail that Ramon's defense team secretly filmed the plaintiff I had no idea that was something lawyers were doing back in the 30s. I thought that was something that didn't come into play till like the 80s. So, <laughs> Good, great point. Yeah. You know, so I was just I was kind of tickled by it. Uh, still tr- struggling with money. Six weeks later, Ramon agreed to star in the French language version of Call of the Flesh, uh, Le Chanteur de Seville. Oof, I butchered that. No, that sounded uh, good. 
Uh, Ramon signed another contract with MGM and went on to star in Matahari, which gave him a much-needed career boost. And soon he was back on top of MGM's male roster. But sadly, it didn't last. Soon Ramon was struggling to find work, appearing in a few films for Republic Pictures before his career came to a standstill in 1939. In November 1940, Ramon's father Mariano died at the age of 69 from myocardial degeneration. Four weeks later, Ramon was in another car accident. Around midnight on December 12th, Ramon had a head-on collision at an intersection in West Hollywood. Ramon later claimed that a doctor heard the accident, drove to the scene where he found Ramon unconscious. Ramon was allegedly not breathing and had swallowed his own tongue. Ramon later said, quote, He gave me an alcohol injection, poured some alcohol in my mouth, pulled my tongue out, and started me breathing again. If it hadn't been for his kindness, I wouldn't be here today. Of course, no one actually believes that story, especially since this alleged doctor has never come forward and was never found. Yeah. It is more likely that Ramon was drinking and somehow thought this crazy story would explain the alcohol in his system. Ramon suffered two broken ribs, a badly bruised chest, a concussion, and a dislocated ankle in the accident. He was later charged with driving over the center line and failing to make a proper turn. He pleaded not guilty, but when the case headed to trial, Ramon admitted his guilt and was fined $25. Ten months later, in October 1941, Ramon's car stalled on Hollywood Boulevard, and he was so intoxicated, he could not get it restarted. He spent the night in jail and was released the following day on $50 bail. Then in April 1942, Ramon was arrested for yet another impaired driving incident. He was fined $150, given a 30-day suspended sentence, ordered to surrender his license for six months, and told to see a psychiatrist. With multiple alcohol-related accidents under his belt, Ramon's reputation in Hollywood started to take a turn. So perhaps in a way to improve it, four months after his most recent arrest, and eight months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Ramon announced he was going to ask to join the American military and serve his country. But since Ramon was born in Mexico he'd have to get special permission from the Mexican government. When his request was actually approved, Ramon panicked, contacted the Mexican government, and said, oh, I'd actually much rather serve my birth country instead. Oh, boy. So in September 1942, Ramon flew to Mexico City, where he met with the president, who suggested that Mexico's film industry would benefit more from Ramon's service than their military would. So Ramon did some Spanish language films and didn't return to American film studios until 1949. Around this time, Ramon's mother, Leonor, died following a stroke. Soon after, Ramon checked himself into a clinic in La Jolla, California, for an extended rest. Mm. By the early 1950s, Ramon spent much of his time out of the public eye, with exception of two episodes of The Ken Murray Show in 1952. Ramon didn't work again until November 1958. In a two-part miniseries on Walt Disney Presents The Nine Lives of El Fago Baca, 
Less than a month after it aired, Ramon was stopped by police after running a red light. He told officers he'd only had one or three drinks. He failed a sobriety test and was subsequently arrested and freed later that day on $263 bail. Just keeps going up. Mm. But Ramon's run-ins with police would not end there. In late May 1960, Ramon was arrested for drunk driving twice in the span of two days. In the first incident, he rear-ended a bus on Hollywood Boulevard, and two nights later, he hit a parked car. In both incidents, he failed a sobriety test and was taken into custody. He pleaded not guilty for the first arrest, and the case was sent to trial. The jury deadlocked on the misdemeanor charge, and he was fined $250. Less than two years later, February 1962, Ramon hit another vehicle after running a red light in Sun Valley. He failed the sobriety test and was arrested yet again. A month later, he was convicted of misdemeanor drink, drunk driving, fined $275, and sentenced to 15 days in jail. His driver's license was revoked. Finally? Yeah. And from then on, his assistant, Edward Weber, who had been with Ramon for three years at this point, uh, would have to be also Ramon's driver. In January 1963, Ramon was diagnosed with emphysema, arthritis, and cirrhosis of the liver. He still tried to find work as much as possible and did a few small roles in TV series such as Bonanza, The Wild Wild West, Dr. Kildare, and Rawhide. But by October 1968, Ramon was receiving unemployment. Which brings us to the day in question. On October 30th, 1968, Ramon received a phone call from a man he didn't know at 2.30 p.m. The man said that his name was Paul and that he had gotten Ramon's number from Larry. After Paul described himself, Ramon invited him over for drinks. At 4.45 p.m., Paul phoned to say he had found a ride and he would arrive at Ramon's house in 45 minutes. Ramon's assistant, Edward, just happened to stop uh, at a nearby liquor store. The store owner told him that Ramon had placed a delivery order for cigarettes, one carton of Marlboro and one carton of Winston's. Since Ramon no longer smoked, Edward assumed that Ramon was having guests over, something he did quite frequently. And even though it was his day off, Edward offered to drop the cigarettes off at Ramon's house personally. Edward arrived at 3110 Laurel Canyon Boulevard between 5.30 and 5.45 p.m. Since he assumed that Ramon had a guest, Edward knocked as opposed to letting himself in. Ramon answered the door wearing just a bathrobe, thanked Edward for the cigarettes, and went back inside. The next morning, on October 31st, Edward arrived at Ramon's house at 8.30 a.m. The gates were open, but the front door was locked. When Edward entered the house, he noticed furniture had been knocked over and there was a pair of eyeglasses crushed on the floor. Edward called out for Ramon, but got no response. He checked the master bedroom, but everything was dark. When Edward opened the curtains, he noticed Ramon lying naked on the king-size bed. Edward approached Ramon and saw that he was badly beaten. He checked to see if Ramon was breathing, and he wasn't. Edward ran to call the police more than 20 officers arrived just minutes later, and Ramon was officially pronounced dead. 
His brothers Eduardo and Angel identified the body. Ramon Navarro was 69 at the time of his death. Wow. Yeah. Lots to wade through here. Yeah. My, oh, and we got more to come. Well, I'm sure we do. My main thing is that I'm just excited because you listed an actual uh, Laurel Canyon address and I, I'll go drive by there. You know what I mean? I like that. Yeah. I like that for you. Yep. I love to see that for us. <laughs> it um, took everything I had not to I do I know. That. It's hard. It's in my brain. Uh, okay. I can't wait to get into the rest of this because I know we're just getting started and we're not even uh, uh, scratching the surface. So grab another yeah. drink, hit the can, and we'll be back with more on the Ramon Navarro episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Ramon Navarro. Uh, where we left off, it was October 31st, Halloween. Yeah. Ramon Navarro was 69 years old. Where do we go from here? Well, we are going to start with the crime scene. Yes. Police found no signs of a break-in. So they assumed that Ramon let his killer inside voluntarily. A garbage can in the backyard was full of empty liquor bottles. And behind a fence at the back of the property, a press photographer found six pieces of blood-stained clothing, including a blue jacket, a blue shirt, a large t-shirt, a jockey undershirt, and two pairs of jockey shorts. Inside the house, police found leftover food and dirty plates in the kitchen sink. The name Larry was written four times on a notepad near the phone in the living room. Furniture was overturned, but it didn't appear as though any valuables were missing. There was blood spatter on the floor and the ceiling in the bedroom. A broken tooth was found uh, near the foot of the bed. The name Larry was written in ink on one of the bed sheets and the, on the mirror in the bathroom with written with a makeup stick were the words, quote, us girls are better than blank, blank being the uh, derogatory gay slang that I refuse to say. Thank you. So just a quick trigger warning. Some of these particular details are a bit graphic. 
Uh, Now, Ramon had been severely beaten with a small, round, striking instrument, which police believe to be the broken, silver-tipped cane that was found lying with the body. The cane was apparently some sort of memento from one of Ramon's movies. Ramon's nose was broken. There was bruising on his head, neck, chest, left arm, knees, and genitals. Oh, dear. I know. There were three shallow knife wounds on the right side of his neck. Ramon's hands were tied behind his back with a brown electrical cord, which went down and also tied around his ankles. In Ramon's right hand, between his thumb and index finger, was an unused condom. Ramon's manner of death was immediately determined to be a homicide. His cause of death was suffocation caused by aspiration of blood due to multiple injuries of the face, nose, and mouth. Essentially, he choked on his own blood. Right. Uh, If Ramon had been lying face down, or maybe even on his side, he may have actually survived. Ramon's time of death was determined to be between 9 and 9.30 p.m. on October 30th, and I know the circumstances were vastly different, but I find it interesting that the time of death could be narrowed down to a 30-minute window in a case from 1968, whereas the case we discussed last week of Phoebe Hansjuk, her time of death window was seven hours. Her body was found right away, Ramon wasn't found for 11 hours. Yes, even a week later, I'm still fired up about that case. But as I said, Ramon's time of death, between 9 and 9.30. Edward was the last known person to see Edward, or sorry, Ramon alive between 5.30 and 5.45 p.m. So who saw Ramon after Edward left? Or better yet, who was in the house when Edward stopped by? Yes. Well, around the time that Ramon had backed away from the public eye, he started hiring escorts. According to his bank account, in the six months prior to his death, Ramon had written more than 100 checks to various gardeners and masseurs, which were code words for escorts. And hey, no shade. No. No shade at all. You do you. Absolutely. When police looked into it, one of the main services that Ramon used had an escort named Larry Ortega. Interesting. Since the name Larry was found written five times in Ramon's house, police brought him in for questioning. Larry admitted he had a business relationship with Ramon, but that he hadn't seen him for days before his death. Larry also told police that on the day of his death, Ramon called him to ask him about a man named Paul, saying that Paul had mentioned Larry by name. At the time, Larry couldn't think of anyone in the business named Paul, so he told Ramon he didn't know him. But speaking with police, Larry said he realized after he did know a Paul, Larry's sister Mari was married to a man named Paul Ferguson. Larry said that Paul was known to hustle on the side and that he had a volatile temper. Mari spoke with police 
and said she had married Paul about five months before. But they had separated just a week ago. Mari said that they had been arguing about finances, but that she was pushed over the edge after Paul's younger brother Tom came to stay with them on October 21st. On November 5th, Ramon's phone records arrived at the police station. Police noted a call to Chicago at 8.21 p.m. on the night of Ramon's death. The call lasted 48 minutes and was made to 19-year-old Brenda Lee Metcalf, who told police she was speaking to her boyfriend of six months, Tom Ferguson. Investigators contacted the police in Chicago and got the rap sheets for Paul and Tom Ferguson. 17-year-old Tom had several previous arrests for running away and petty theft. He was also currently wanted by the Chicago Youth Authority for escaping from a reform school after beating up and robbing an elderly gentleman. Interesting. 22-year-old Paul had two arrests in Chicago for fighting and had spent eight months in a Wyoming jail after being convicted of larceny. And Paul and Tom's fingerprints matched those that were found inside Ramon's house. Police went to Paul's apartment looking for the brothers where they were arrested for robbery and the murder of Ramon Navarro. Since Tom was only 17 at the time, he was sent to juvenile hall where he bragged to his fellow inmates that he had killed Ramon. Now, before we get into their trial, I thought you might want some background on the brothers. Yeah. Paul Robert Ferguson was born March 25th, 1946 in Selma, Alabama. Thomas Scott Ferguson was born January 10th, 1951 at the Great Lakes Naval Station near Chicago, Illinois. Paul was the firstborn. Tom was the fourth. Six other children followed. Their father, Lucky Ferguson, was an alcoholic who was physically abusive towards his children, especially to Paul. At one point, when Lucky had a broken leg, he jumped off a high bridge into wa- into like a river while he was holding on to Paul, who was just a toddler at the time. After being abused by his father, Paul ran away from home at the age of 10, hitchhiking from Florida to Chicago to be with his grandmother. Lucky died of spinal meningitis at the age of 33. Paul was just 12 at the time. At some point, his mother, Lorraine, married a man named Norman Smith. Apparently, Paul and Norman got into some sort of physical altercation at the wedding. Lorraine and Norman had two additional children. At a young age, Paul considered being a priest, but gave up on the idea when he became a teenager. At 14, he left home for good, working his way across the country, doing odd jobs such as handyman or steeplejack, which essentially is like... repairing and painting steeples, bridges, towers, anything that's like really high and potentially dangerous. He spent some time in Mexico before moving to Wyoming to work as a rancher. At 15, Paul lied about his age so he could join the army. He was honorably discharged a year later. At 18, Paul posed for nudes with physique photographer Chuck Renslow in June 1964. Around this same time, he also appeared in a few pornographic films and did some hustling or male escort work on the side. At 16, Paul married a 42-year-old woman. 
Their marriage was annulled nine months later. Paul married again at 19, but they divorced soon after. Then in July 1968, at the age of 22, Paul married Mari Ortega. Paul met Mari through her brother Larry when the two men hustled together. Tom left home at the age of 15 and spent two years as a person without housing. After escaping from a reform school, his grandmother sent him to Los Angeles to live with Paul. But the timing couldn't have been worse. Paul and his wife Mari had been fighting about finances, and Paul had recently been laid off at Alco Engineering. So soon after Tom arrived, Mari left uh, after the couple had some sort of heated argument over a can of evaporated milk. I wish that I had more details about that argument. The thing is, Paul and Tom were never very close. In 1966, Tom hitchhiked to Dallas, where Paul was living at the time. Tom stayed with Paul for two days before stealing jewelry belonging to Paul's girlfriend and pawning it. Tom left town and they did not see or speak with each other until October 1968. And at this point, Tom didn't have a job. Paul had just been laid off, so the brothers were broke. Tom suggested they could hustle some older gentlemen for quick cash. So on October 29th, Paul and Tom Ferguson visited Paul's friend, real estate investor, Victor Nichols, who had a list of phone numbers for gay men in LA who enjoyed, shall we say, some company. And without even thinking about it, Victor gave them a list of numbers, which included Ramon Navarro. In fact, Victor outright suggested that they call Ramon as he was, quote, a very kind man. Victor also suggested that when they called to tell Ramon that Larry had given them the number, as Larry was one of Ramon's usual escorts. At 2.30 p.m., Paul called Ramon, and two hours later, a friend of Paul's dropped both of the Fergusons off at Ramon's house on Laurel Canyon Boulevard. According to Paul and Tom, when they entered the home, they were offered drinks before sitting on the couch in the living room to talk. Ramon read Paul's palm, talked about potentially hiring Tom as a gardener, and then showed them an old movie magazine that featured a picture of Ramon from Ben-Hur. Ramon then suggested that Paul might have a future as an actor. So at 6.30 p.m., Ramon called Leonard Shannon, a film publicist with United Artists, and arranged for Leonard to meet with Paul at Ramon's house in three days' time. Ramon, Paul, and Tom then had dinner before Paul started playing the piano. The entire night, the three men drank constantly. According to the toxicology report, Ramon's blood alcohol level was 0.23. So up to this point, Paul and Tom's version of events are the same. But the moment that Paul starts playing piano, their versions kind of go different ways. So according to Paul, he played a duet with Ramon before Ramon asked which brother would be staying the night and which brother would be leaving. Paul said he was drunk and asked if he could sleep on the couch for a bit before hitchhiking home. As he was passing out, Paul claims that he saw Tom accompany Ramon to the patio. Sometime later, Tom woke Paul up saying, quote, the guy is dead. 
Paul followed Tom to the bedroom, where he found Ramon's naked body on the floor. The brothers lifted his body and placed him on the bed. Paul noted that Ramon's hands were tied. Paul put his ear to Ramon's chest and agreed that Ramon was dead. Paul allegedly suggested they call the police, but Tom said they should make it look like a robbery instead. Tom told Paul that he didn't mean to do it. But according to Tom, Ramon agreed to let both brothers spend the night, and Tom was shown to the guest room. Tom got restless and went to call his girlfriend Brenda in Chicago. On his way past Ramon's bedroom, Tom saw Paul and Ramon naked together. Paul yelled, get the hell out of here, and Tom went to use the phone in the dining area. 48 minutes into the call, Tom allegedly heard screams from the bedroom, so he told Brenda he needed to check out what was happening, and he hung up. Tom said that he went to the bedroom and found Paul standing at the foot of the bed, his shorts covered in blood. Ramon was naked, sitting on the edge of the bed. Paul told Tom to take Ramon to the shower to help him clean up. When they returned to the bedroom, Tom helped Ramon lie down. Paul re-entered the room carrying a cane that he had found and started demanding money. Ramon said he had none in the house and that he was planning to pay them with a check. Ramon then got quiet, so Tom checked for vitals, but there were none. Paul started to cry and said he thought that Ramon was going to attack him, and he was unsteady on his feet and slipped on the blood that was covering the floor. The brothers then lifted Ramon to the bed, and Tom said that Paul tied the electrical cord around Ramon's hands and feet, saying that they should make it look like Ramon was killed by burglars. Paul wrote Larry on the bedsheet, as well as on the notepad, I guess to give the police a suspect, but in reality, it just gave the police a very easy way to track them down. Tom took $20 from Ramon's bathrobe pocket, then used a knife to make marks on Ramon's neck so that it looked as though he had been scratched by fingernails, but he did not do a very good job. Uh, he put a condom in Ramon's hand and wrote that message on the bathroom mirror. Paul and Tom both claim they used their clothes to mop up some of the blood, then replaced their clothing with pieces from Ramon's closet. Paul threw their bloody clothes over a fence, and the brothers left the scene. They hitchhiked downhill and ended up in Hollywood around 11.30 p.m. They got another ride and went to Victor Nichols' apartment, where Paul told Victor that Tom had killed Ramon. They asked to borrow Victor's car. Instead, he gave them $8 for a cab fare. They ended up walking to an apartment belonging to Paul's former co-worker, where the brothers spent the night. So which brother was telling a more accurate story of the night's events? Well, let's get to the trial, which started July 28, 1969, the brothers would be tried individually with a court-appointed attorney representing Tom and an attorney paid for by a Ferguson family member representing Paul. Interesting. Tom's ex-girlfriend Brenda was flown in from Chicago. This is a uh, quote from Brenda's testimony. Quote, He told me that he and his brother were invited to this movie star's house. 
Then he told me he was working and trying to save enough money so he could send me about $300 so I could come down there and get married. I don't know how he got on the subject, but Tom told me his brother knew there was $5,000 behind one of the pictures in the house, and they were going to try and find it. And for some reason, the idea of the Fergusons looking for $5,000 kept coming up at the trial from like multiple different people. But if they really thought there was a safe behind a picture on a wall, then why did none of the picture frames have any of their fingerprints on it? Why did none of the picture frames get moved in any way? Tom denies ever saying anything to Brenda about $5,000. Brenda claimed she heard someone yell, quote, you're hurting me, and the sound of a body falling. Now, Brenda, I don't want to call you a liar, but the dining room where Tom was calling you from seems like it was a bit of a distance from the bedroom and the closed door that this all happened from. So did you hear a body fall? Or did you find out after that this man had been murdered and you were like, yep, I heard it. Like that feels maybe more of it. Um, Just like you swear you heard Tom say he was trying to steal $5,000, which just doesn't seem like that was true. Paul's landlady told the jury that Paul promised to pay his late rent because he was going to receive $5,000. Again, the exact amount coming up. However, another tenant who allegedly overheard Paul and the landlady's conversation said Paul never mentioned $5,000 and the landlady was kind of shady, apparently. So some of the investigators who worked the case testified at the trial that Paul's estranged wife, Mari, told them that Paul mentioned getting $5,000 soon. Mari disputes this. Paul also said that he had no knowledge of this alleged $5,000, and I kept wondering why that specific amount kept coming up when it didn't appear to be true. My best guess is the police and possibly the prosecution wanted to ensure that it looked as though Tom and Paul were trying to rob Ramon, because according to California law, if a victim dies during an act of a robbery or torture, even if the death is an accident, everybody involved in the crime is charged with first-degree murder. Without a potential robbery, best charge, maybe manslaughter. Right. A court-appointed psychiatrist for the defense said Paul suffered from sociopathic disorder as a result of childhood trauma and a sex identity conflict that made him exaggerate his masculinity. Interesting. They said, they said Paul's mental capacity was seriously impaired when he was intoxicated, which would have likely made him a danger to himself and others. But then the psychiatrist followed that idea, saying... That alcohol would have made Paul, quote, unable to form the intent to commit murder. So how does alcohol make you a danger to yourself and others, but also make it so you are unable to want to kill somebody? You know, like those two things just don't go together to me. Uh, Three other psychiatrists refuted the statement and the diagnosis although none of them spent very long speaking with Paul. 
Now, Victor Nichols admitted in court that he gave Paul Ramon's number and that after the murder, they showed up at his apartment. Victor claims that while Tom was sleeping, Paul said, quote, Tom went to bed with Ramon, Ramon tried to seduce him, and he hit him several times and he's dead. And all I have to say to this, wouldn't we consider Victor some sort of an accessory? Yeah. He admitted to giving the phone numbers for outright suggesting Ramon. He even admitted he knew Ramon was dead hours before the body was found, and he didn't call police at any point in any of this. But yet, we apparently had no problem with Victor. Well, I can't say we, because I have a lot of problems with Victor. The police and the investigators had no problems with Victor. So Paul takes the stand during the trial. He admits that he worked as a hustler for a few weeks or a few months every year for the past four years. But he said he'd never seen the cane until the prosecution presented it as an exhibit during the trial. Paul also outright said, I didn't kill him. It was my brother. Tom took the stand. He said he saw Paul in bed with Ramon and that while he was on the phone with his girlfriend, Paul had beaten Ramon to death. Tom claims that Paul told him the alcohol made him lose control. Tom also testified that Paul had seen a vision of his estranged wife, Mari, when Ramon tried to kiss him, and Paul shoved Ramon, causing him to fall and injure himself. Which, if you're keeping track at home, is two different stories there, Tom. Did Paul beat Ramon on purpose, or did he shove Ramon, who fell and got hurt? Yeah. Despite his differing stories, Tom added, quote, Paul is mentally ill and needs help. The Ferguson's mother, Lorraine Smith, took the stand and testified that Tom wrote her a letter admitting to killing Ramon because, quote, he deserved it. Whoa. Thing is, as compelling as that testimony may be, Lorraine didn't have the actual letter to verify it. She claimed she destroyed it after reading it. How Ugh. convenient. Yeah. Lorraine also testified that Tom had been in an Illinois mental institution on two separate occasions and that he'd been in and out of juvenile hall and jail since he was 13. Also, while on the witness stand, Lorraine was asked about a letter she wrote to Tom on May 27th prior to the trial. In the letter, Lorraine wrote, quote, Tom, when you testify, think about what you are saying. You're holding Paul's life in your hands. You can either let him live or die. Lorraine denied trying to sway Tom's testimony in any way, even though the letter proves that she absolutely did. Yeah! On September 17, 1969, after 6,500 pages of transcripts, six weeks of testimony, and over 200 exhibits, the jury deliberated for eight hours over the course of two days and found both Paul and Tom guilty of first-degree murder. Paul would either be sentenced to life in prison or death row. His fate would be determined during the penalty or sentencing phase the week after. But since Tom was a minor, the death penalty was off the table, so he was automatically sentenced to life in prison. During the sentencing, things took a bit of a turn. For reasons I don't understand, 
Tom took the witness stand again. Maybe he asked to say something. I don't know. Uh, but when he got on the stand, now Tom said he was the one responsible for Ramon Navarro's death, not Paul, which is a complete 180 from his testimony during the trial. But now Tom was saying, quote, I didn't kill Mr. Navarro, but it was my fault that he died. Tom's story now was, quote, Mr. Navarro came up to me uh, when Paul was asleep on the couch. We had a sex act, oral copulation. He tried to put his finger fingers up my rectum. I started hitting him. Tom claims Ramon went to the bathroom to wipe off the blood, and he said, quote, I looked at him and it made me sick. So Tom hit Ramon again. Ramon ran for the phone, and Tom said, quote, I hit him again. I was just mad. I tied him up. I went in to wake up Paul. He came in, and Mr. Navarro was on the floor. He looked dead. I got the cane out of the closet, just goofing around with it, twirling it like a baton. Then I hit him on the face with it and threw it on the floor. Then I saw the cane on the floor, and I cracked him across the head twice. When Tom was asked about the fact that he committed perjury during the trial, he said he didn't feel guilty because, quote, Paul was supposed to get manslaughter and I was supposed to get off. It's not our fault we got a dumb jury. But if you ask Tom, who is specifically at fault for Ramon's death, he says, quote, he wasn't killed. He died of a broken nose. I'm the one who busted his nose. I caused his death. Ramon caused his death. He was as much a part of it as I was. Oh, boy. I can't with Tom. After Tom's new confession on September 25th, after two and a half hours of deliberation, the jury sentenced Paul to life in prison. Paul said, quote, I'm glad Tom finally told the truth. It sounds like Tom is really sorry for what he has done to me. And the very reason he was in L.A. was because I wanted to help him. I love my brother. Okay. But we know that is bullshit because they were not close, even while growing up. And Paul didn't want to help Tom. Their grandmother kind of forced Paul to take Tom in. Both of the lawyers requested a retrial. Both requests were denied. Now, that might feel like the end of this story. But I thought you might want to hear what's happened to these characters since the trial. Of course. Paul, it is said, thrived in prison. He was the host of his prison's radio station, which I have a lot of questions about. Uh, he studied welding and creative writing. He earned an associate's degree from the College of Marin and won first prize in a writing competition for his short story, Dream No Dreams. His writing got published somewhere publicly, and a woman was so taken with Paul's writing style that she left her husband for Paul. No. The pair were, they were granted conjugal visits and eventually got married. They have since divorced. Oh. For his good behavior, Paul was given the chance to work in the prison's forestry program. Whereas Tom had a different experience. Tom spent much of his time trying to escape, which led him to often be in solitary confinement. Tom also did any drugs he could get his hands on, even things like glue. 
Um, and then somehow ended up marrying the prison psychiatrist. Stop. Who was in her 50s at the time. Stop. They did divorce soon after, believe it or not. Uh, In 1975, Tom petitioned to reopen their case, which led to his release a year later. Which, if I may point out, was after serving about seven years, which isn't much of a life sentence, if you ask me. Tom was put on probation and worked in a furlough program in 1976. However, after violating the terms of his parole, he was sent back to prison and then re-released in June 1977. Tom married for a second time, and the couple had a daughter before divorcing. Tom then traveled to Michigan before heading back to California in the early 80s, where he was arrested for raping a 54-year-old woman in January 1987. Tom claimed he was innocent, but pleaded no contest and was sentenced to eight years. He was paroled in 1990 after serving just three In 1991, Tom had numerous arrests for public intoxication, petty theft, and failure to appear in court. He was sent back to prison in 1997 after failing to register as a sex offender when he moved to Palm Springs. On March 6, 2005, Tom went to a Motel 6 where he took his own life. He was 54 years old. Paul was paroled in July 1978 after serving nearly nine years. Again, not a life sentence. He started his own construction business and worked random jobs throughout the United States, Mexico, and Ecuador. He eventually settled in Poplar Bluff, Bluff, Missouri, where he bought a nightclub and worked as a rodeo promoter. Paul remarried and the couple had a son. In March 1989, Paul was arrested for a rape and sodomy charge. Paul claims he's innocent and blames the corrupt legal system and local politics, claiming a prosecutor was framing him. Paul was sentenced to 60 years, although his time was cut in half after an appeal. Now, according to that math, that means that Paul would have been released, assuming he did the full time, in 2019. But I did find one source that claimed that Paul died in prison in September 2018 at the age of 72. I could not confirm this, But I do know that by 2012, Paul had suffered five heart attacks throughout his time in prison. So his death in 2018 is more than possible. It's also possible and terrifying to think he's currently a free man, even as an old man. When asked later in his life what really happened on October 30th, 1968, Tom Ferguson said, quote, I was on the phone with my friggin' girlfriend when that happened. I never touched the fucking guy. Which isn't a surprise, as Tom's sudden change of heart during the sentencing period felt like he was just trying to spare Paul from a death sentence. But I'm fascinated by Paul's story and how it has evolved over the years. Now, in 1968, Paul said he passed out, and when he woke up, Ramon was dead, and it was all Tom's fault. Because, of course, he'd try and blame Tom. After all, Paul was trying to avoid the death penalty. In a 1998 interview, Paul said, quote, When Navarro kissed me, I reacted like a Catholic, what they call homosexual panic. I was too drunk to be civilized. I reacted. 
It had nothing to do with Navarro, nothing to do with his being homosexual. It all had to do with how I saw myself and the fact that that my brother was there and that he could see me in that homosexual act. It all had to do with my Catholic upbringing. I think after I hit Mr. Navarro, I turned around and sat on the sofa. We didn't go there to rob him. We didn't steal anything. There was no robbery, no torture, no murder. The killing was manslaughter. Let me be clear. The gay panic defense is absolute bullshit, and there is absolutely no excuse for ever causing violence against the LGBTQIA plus community. No excuse. Grow the fuck up, Paul, and take responsibility for your actions. Then in a 2012 interview, Paul said, quote, I'm drinking and listening to him talk about the movies. I'm going, wow, this guy can tell some pretty good stories, but I'm getting drunk. The next thing I knew, I find myself being overwhelmed by this body, just like hairiness and I guess being kissed or whatever the fuck it was. And I come out of that and I get the fucking boom and I walked out. So that's what happened. Not exactly a clear version of events, Paul. So he added, quote, I'm a boxer. When I hit you, I probably hit you three or four times. I remember standing beside this man and coming out of this heavy drunken fog and hitting him and seeing him fall on the bed. But I didn't do anything more than that. So of murder, I was innocent. Of manslaughter, I wasn't innocent. Even of manslaughter, maybe you could say I was innocent. But I was guilty of hitting him. I did hit him. But I did it in a drunken stupor. So to sum up, in 1968, Paul told police Tom killed Ramon. In 1998, Paul admitted to hitting Ramon and then claimed the gay panic defense. And in 2012, Paul still admits he hit Ramon, but this time he blames alcohol and says it was just an accident. But if you have a concern that Paul might have taken Ramon's death too hard, in 2002, Paul said, quote, Mr. Navarro's death still affects me, both personally and in society. It pretty much crashed my world and the dust has never settled. Yeah, Paul. How do you think Ramon feels about it? Yeah. I just don't have time for people who want to play the victim. Ten years later, Paul added, quote, As far as Mr. Navarro, I came to peace with that a long time ago. I'm at peace with what happened. It was not intentional. It was an accident. I'm not at peace that a human being is dead, and I was part of that. That has haunted me. I never deliberately hurt Mr. Navarro. I am absolutely responsible, but it's not the things you do. It's the things you do intentionally. Oh, stop. It's who you are. Final fun fact side note. In the late 70s, Ramon's family put his Laurel Canyon house up for sale. And in 1980, the house, along with some of the furniture, was purchased by Ryan Gene Kelly, a huge fan of Ramon's who often dressed like him. Ryan allegedly furnished the house to look the way it did on the day that Ramon died? Uh, Ryan claimed that Ramon's spirit haunts the house. On September 30th, 1981, just nine days 
after his 35th birthday, Ryan was fatally shot in the chest by his brother-in-law. The incident happened just up the street from the house. I couldn't find a reason for that murder or what even happened to the shooter. Uh, Ryan Kelly was an actor who was a in a bit part uh, in a Western in 1976 called Baker's Hawk, which starred Burl Ives, Danny Bonaducci, and Diane Baker, who you may know from Silence of the Lambs or three episodes of Murder, she wrote. Thank you. Shout out to uh, Angela Lansbury. Uh, and for the sake of clarity, I mean the actor Ryan Gene Kelly, who was born in September 1946, not the actor Ryan Jonathan Kelly, who was born in August 1986. You know, may know that actor from Teen Wolf, Ben 10, Alien Swarm, and Mean Creek. So when I came across the story of Ramon Navarro, I was shocked to discover an old Hollywood murder that I had never heard of. I don't have my finger on the pulse. I don't know of it. all of them, of course. But it's just the fact that I had never heard of it in any way was very surprising to me. And once I read the details about the men who committed the crime, I knew that it was something I was going to bring up on the show. And even though the case is solved, I think it's fascinating to look at why people commit the crimes they do. And while Paul and Tom Ferguson both spent time in prison for the crime, I don't know if you could say that justice was served. They admitted to seeking Ramon out to make money, and no matter what excuse they give, in the end, they brutally murdered an innocent man. And based on their rap sheets since the murder, I think it's safe to say that neither of them deserved an early release in the first place. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wowzer. What a yeah. fascinating one. My God. I had never We're heard everywhere. of this one either. And I mean, so close to home for me. I feel like uh, Laurel Canyon. It's just uh, around the bend. My goodness. Yeah. Um, well, listen, let's get one more drink. Hit the cam one more time. Fox needs to go outside and I'm going to take him. And we're going to come right back to give our final thoughts and theories on this case, the Ramon Navarro case of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking the case of Ramon Navarro. Now, I just want to say kudos for finding this case. I will be completely honest. I am someone who is intrinsically linked to all things old Hollywood in that I'm a enthusiast. I'm a fan. 
And I was not aware of Ramon's work, and shame on me. And uh, I'm so happy to have learned of his work. Uh, I'm not happy to have learned of his death, but I am happy sure. that we are able to, to tell his story uh, in full. So I appreciate that uh, greatly. So I give I give massive shout outs to Christy um, for bringing this one up. Amazing details of his family lineage, like from the very yeah. beginning, the details about his father going to America, going to dental school, coming back to Mexico, getting married, settling in Mexico. The details about suffering facial neuralgia and then oh, that no. being the reason his facial nerves being that he had to switch occupations to teaching English. All of these, look, I know that anybody's family story can obviously have all of these interesting kinds of details, but there's just a richness, I feel like, to this story that is just fascinating. You know, sure. again, from the specificity of having them having, now I know that not all the children survive very tragically, but having 13 children, like there's so much here. Um, again, it's an old Hollywood story from the get. There's stuff from the yeah. get, which I'm, 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 I'm transfixed immediately. I like that Ramon and his brother seemingly went to California on a whim. Seemingly yeah. that it was like Ramon suddenly had a dream of, of show business. Um, love all of this. I like that he was in a touring show that took him to Canada, our home. Yeah. Love that a lot. I also like that he was bold and ballsy enough to go up to D.W. Griffith and ask for an audition. I don't love yeah. that D.W. Griffith was like, sure, and then kind of... Uh, gave him the runaround and then maybe or yeah. maybe not took him seriously. That's gross, especially because Ramon was a person of color. I feel like I'm not suggesting that that's the only reason, but it was the 19, it, at that point it was, you know, 1918, 1920. Yeah. It just feels a little gross to me. Don't yes. be, don't do that DW Griffith. No, don't, don't play with people. Don't waste their time. Um, Okay, love that his name was based on a, a typo. I always think that those are interesting. Yeah. I mean, your your middle name was based on a typo. Well, and multiple forms of my ID have different spellings. Mm -hmm. It The stress <laughs> that I feel when I need to give like a document and I always have to explain like that's spelled incorrectly is, I mean, it's, it drives me crazy, but, but they so won't funny. fix it. They won't fix it. I've asked repeatedly and it's so easy to make a typo well yeah just yeah, it's so just easy to, to card. i know but it's good yeah. luck to you good oh, luck yeah um okay i love that he was in this original ben-hur now my ben-hur yeah. knowledge was obviously only the charlton heston version um which is one of shout out mother laurel's favorite movies she loves ben-hur and she loves the ten commandments did oh, i take her to see the ten commandments in theaters Around Easter, Passover, one year. I want to say circa maybe like 2012. I did. Did I sit through the whole thing? I did. Oh. Do I feel I deserve an award? I do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I will say oh. this. She tried to get me to watch it as a kid, and I was like, this is a slog. As an adult, yes. I was able to at least watch and follow, etc. Now, as a child, she also tried to, to get me to watch White Christmas, which I didn't care for. Now, I will cut anyone who doesn't say it is a Christmas classic. So she did something right. That's that's nice. It also, is. I couldn't. I don't want to sit in a movie theater seat. 
for three plus hours. No. Like there's, there's no, just no interest. Not interested. On my couch? Sure. So I can I, get up, move around, bathroom break, that sort of thing. I yes, want please. Eight, I want eight hours here with Love yes. is Blind season three. But we don't need to of go course. back to that. We don't need to go back to that. I the like pain's the, still fresh. It always will be. I Here's another thing I like. What I like about the 1920s, 1930s is that he did a movie, again, the Top Gun of its day, potentially. Yeah. Then decided to go to Europe to pursue opera. And what I love about that is that nowadays it doesn't really work like that. Like, I, I don't know that for me mm-hmm. as, as, a, as an actor where I am, I could go, you know what? To Germany. <laughs> like, I just don't think that that's with sure. no training, et cetera. Like, I just love mm-hmm. the I love I love old Hollywood. These are the things that I love about it, where it was like, yes. and then he went to pursue opera like the best. Um, it's tragic to me that we see this kind of pattern with Ramon for so many years that are following this very specific breakup, his relationship with Herbert, Herbert Howe. And then we see very literally so many DUIs, which again, it really speaks to, to me. And it's not to say that he wasn't necessarily drinking before then, but it does feel potentially connected and it does feel like potentially trying to medicate a trauma, all of the above, broken heart, all of these kinds of things. Him having an assistant steal his money. That is... Another massive tragedy. It's such a betrayal. It's so sad. I I I feel for anyone who who has had that happen because the only thing I will say very quickly, not to get off track, but like what I will only say is as an actor, especially if you're an actor who's like worked for it. I mean, we sure. all work for it, don't get me wrong. But if you're like a child star that then becomes, you know, a massive star, et cetera, I mean, you pay a price in another way. But like, if you work for a long time to get where you are and you earn every one of those dollars, yeah. the idea, putting my, because I could just put myself in those shoes, the idea of somebody just stealing from you, and it can happen because if you trust people, I'm a will o' wisp. A clown. I'm not paying attention. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't, because you can't pay attention to absolutely everything that's going on with your career. And there's so many times that I've heard over the years, you hear about a celebrity and someone, their business manager, you know, assistant, et cetera, is stealing from them. And people are like, well, how is that possible? Why aren't they paying attention? The answer is, is because creatives like them and like me, we, we, we can't, we, we try, I try, but like, I can't, I don't have a brain for it. But again, talk to my mother who is a numbers woman. Like I just, I I try, but I can't. And we hire people to do that for us that we trust so that we can continue to make our art and do what we do and be creative and not have to do something that makes it feel like my skin is being ripped off that I don't truly understand or have the brain capacity to handle. So when you, when you employ somebody to do that for you, and then they take advantage of you and betray uh, you. Yeah. And you worked so hard for it. Yeah. It it, it guts me. It guts yeah. me. If somebody, if, if that happened to me, I mean, I don't even know. Find, go, go to the mental wards. That's where you'll find me because again, sure. it's like, I just don't even know. Because again, it's like, I do what I do and I pay you to do what you do because I yeah. deeply respect you. 
It's not because I don't respect the money. I think there's a perception of that from other people that it's like, well, you don't care. Sure. It's like you're so caught up in your own whatever. No, I deeply respect my money. Trust me. I want someone to take care of it for me because I don't know how to do it. And I my brain doesn't work in that way. Do you know what I mean? It's a different yes. brain type. And my heart breaks about that stuff, honestly. And it breaks for him because, it, again, if you bring somebody in like an assistant, it's usually because it started as a friend or so, an acquaintance sure. that you know and you build a rapport and you feel like you can trust that person. And then it, when it was like this this character who's like, well, his, his brother lost all this money, so he stole money from a rich person to give it back. It's like, as an actor, we may be rich at one point, but let me tell you something. You're not rich every year and you're not necessarily rich forever. So how dare you? You were stealing from right? this man's retirement fund. You were stealing from his legacy, whatever you want to call it. Like, Sure. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Um, anyway, I'll get off my soap, my soap box. Um, I because like again, you on your soapbox. Well, yeah, I just, again, I'm trying to give context to things that I remember when I was younger, not fully understanding where I'd be like, well, how sure. does that person not know what their, where their money is and why don't they respect their money? Like whatever. And it's like, it's just not about that. It's, it's, it's about really respecting your money. It's not that it's like flagrant and it's like, I have someone sure. manage my money. So if I go crazy, they could call and go, Lauren, you've made some bad choices. You need to rein <laughs> it in. That's what manage, mm-hmm. business managers do in Hollywood. Truthfully. They're there. Sure. You employ them because, again, we're we're a, a flippity gibbet, a will of a wisp. We don't know what we're doing. It's just not. It's not sure. because we want to be flagrant necessarily. It's more that it's just a different brain. It's a different. Our brains work in different ways. Uh, and you know, you don't want to be destitute. Uh, you want to try and have longevity. Um, right. His career stalling out at 1939. This is what I'm saying. Oh. He didn't need to lose that money to the assistant because he would have won it. For a, a lean year when he wasn't making as much. 1940, his dad dies. Four years later, excuse me, four weeks later, has another car accident. And the fact that he put on such a story there, a doctor came and found me, I swallowed my tongue, etc. It's like, yeah. now things are escalating. Yeah. Now this is becoming something else, you know. Again, 1941. Car stalled, too drunk to start it again. 1942, another DUI. I find it also very, psychologist hat on, I find it very interesting that after Pearl Harbor, he wanted to join the military, the U.S. military, and then it was like, well, I need Mexico's approval. And Mexico was like, okay. And then he was like, I didn't, I didn't really <clears throat> want that. Uh, <laughs> we don't really need to be doing that. Um, yep. It feels like... I mean, listen, and I'd need a lot more context probably ultimately, but it feels like, again, to me, with compassion, ultimately, this is a man who wants a win. Yes. You know what I mean? This is a man who just wants a win. I don't think that he was like trying to be a bad guy. I don't think that he was trying to pretend to be something that he wasn't. These are all things to me that are reading like, I'm trying so hard to be good and I'm really struggling, you know? Yeah. Um, And then the fact that they were like, oh, well, you could do movies in Mexico and we'd really appreciate that. And he was like, okay, again, this is a man that wants wants a win. He won- And again, he went yes. back. He did some for, for some time. Comes back to the U.S. More DUIs. Again, 1962, he hit someone in Sun Valley course when i hear sun valley i always think of clueless sure where are you sun valley spoiler <laughs> alert that's not where that 
liquor store is. That liquor store is in North Hollywood. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> and this is when he got his license revoked and his assistant became his driver. Yeah. 1968, he's on unemployment again. Would have been a nice time, that money that was stolen from him. Hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. He probably could have used that money at this point. Yeah. Um, this whole thing to me, also shout out, this is uh, October 31st. You're right on the money. This case is, yeah. you know, very thematic. Um, this whole thing to me is so tragic. Because for me also, you know, look, I'll give my opinion. I've had enough Prosecco. My mother's listening to this. I don't care. Here's my true belief. Mm -hmm. I believe that sex work, if it is people who are, have agency. Yeah. And are happy and thriving and want to do that work. I believe in that work for them. Yeah. That's not to say I want to do that work. That's not to say I want to partake in that work, but I respect that as a, as a, as a theme. I don't, I, I would love for there to be things that could protect those sex workers because yeah. I don't, I don't need to explain to you as we've been doing this podcast, as long as we have, there is stigma and um, disrespect and all kinds of things where, yeah. again, I don't agree with anyone being forced into sex work, but if no. someone of any gender says, this is what I want to do and I love it and this is my, I'm fucking owning it and this is my thing and they truly, mm -hmm. truly love it, God bless, yes, do it. And I, I feel, I really feel for Ramon because I feel like the, from the, what it sounds like, he never got over that breakup. At this point in his, his life, he's he's an older gentleman. And he's wanting the company of, of younger men. And it's interesting to hear about what the night was like. Because as you said, the way that the night was described by both of these men, by both Paul and Tom, was the same until it got intimate and then it got violent. Yes. But the way that they both described the early part of the night was quite pleasant. And it was yeah. much about having dinner, having a conversation, having companionship. And these are the things so many people, when you actually listen to people who do sex work, will talk about. They'll talk about their clients that like, there's a lot of clients don't even really ask for much sexually. It's people who really want connection and want to have conversation. Yeah. It's people who who are heartbroken or they've lost someone. Uh, someone has died that was meaningful to them. And this is a way for them to connect with someone else that feels intimate but doesn't feel as intimate as trying to find another relationship. There's a beauty in all of it if you really want to get into it, which I will if you get me another soapbox and uh, some more Prosecco. But <laughs> my point to all of this is, Ramon, as we know, he's been seeing escorts in this time. Good for him. Again, that's his prerogative. My concern, again, is that we're dealing with a time where that's not as accepted as, as, as it is now. And by the way, it's not accepted now. So back then, 1960s, yeah, it's dicey. Um, I say that with no judgment, more just about safety. Obviously, also because of what we know 
that happened. Um, but this whole thing, the fact that the police immediately found Larry and he was like, don't yeah. know, uh, you know, don't know a Paul, don't know. Or, or when he was talking to Ramon, don't know a Paul. And then police, he was like, oh, yeah, I absolutely do. It's like, yeah. it's just sad to me. All of this, like every detail of this. I think I also just every time it's an artist, I always like I I feel like I can relate. I feel like I'm like I'm sure. I'm only ever one step away from being the the you know the person I I feel you're only one step away from the chicken suit. Quote Brad Pl- Brad Pitt Brad Pitt. <laughs> it's true, um, but again, you know, it's like I don't fault him for wanting what he wanted. It's not like the stories that we're hearing was that he was like, oh, he wanted to get escorts to beat the shit out of them and whatever. It was like, no, he was hiring escorts to have what sounds like a fairly reasonable connection, all of these things. And I don't judge, by the way, um, I'm not kink shaming either, but when everyone's consenting, it's, it's also completely fine. But it's also just an interesting... It's just interesting nuance, right? It's an interesting nuance when it's the 1960s. Yeah. What does that look like? What does that mean? And unfortunately, in this case, it is is a concern. Basically, what I'm saying is, I think my heart just breaks a little bit for Ramon as an older man who is clearly looking for companionship in every sense. And he really just came across the wrong guys. Because no matter how you... No matter how you, you you slice it, no matter how you cut it, which I'll get to in a second, these two guys killed him. Oh. You know? And it's tough because, and I listen, I will fully, fully, again, say, um, this was a different time. We're also dealing with Tom, who was 17 at the time, who yes. was far too young and too, you can't be consenting to... Um, doing that kind of work at that age. So got to call that out too. Paul was 22. He was a consenting adult yeah. at the time. Um, It's sad to me that Tom, you know, allegedly bragged in juvie about killing Ramon. It's interesting to me that their father, Lucky, had uh, jumped off that bridge with Paul when Paul was a toddler. It's like, what is that? What kind of imprinting does that do on our brains that we don't realize? Um, Paul's whole story is interesting to me. Again, lying to get into the army, getting discharged later, posing for nudes, getting married at 16 to a 42-year-old woman. I'm not going to suggest for a second that I think that his life was easy or or not troubled. Sure. Um, but of course, I also don't believe that that excuses murder. Um, and especially in this case, too, it's interesting because, as we know, Paul was doing this kind of work. And in court, as you mentioned, one of the psychologists said that he was kind of having a question with his sexuality, which I, you know, since that was in, you know, years ago when we were in a different time, I interpret that now as being like, perhaps he was bisexual, perhaps he was pansexual, perhaps he was 
um, a multitude of different sexualities. Perhaps, or or yeah. perhaps he wasn't. Perhaps he, you know, there's there's no no way to really know. We we haven't talked to him, and I wouldn't want to speculate. But my point just is, is that what's sad to me is that my perception here, if we're dealing with the facts, is that we know that there was that very long phone call made to Tom's girlfriend. Yep, and that is a fact. Yep. This is not yes. right. So to me, when I'm going through all of this and we're trying to piece together what exactly is the full story, it sounds to me like that phone call happened because we we have proof of that. Yes. Do we have proof of who was on either side of that phone call? We don't. So could it have being you been being used to like give somebody an alibi? Maybe. But to that, I would say... <laughs> That's a lot of layers. That's a lot of layers. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that that makes any sense to me. To me, what it sounds like is the truth, is that Paul, who we know was older, 22, had experience doing this kind of work, was doing this kind of work. Tom yeah. walked in on it, made this phone call. Paul felt a certain way because... He was witness doing this by his brother and reacted. That feels, again, like the simplest story feels to be true in this case. And the fact that Tom's story changed, both of their stories changed, but the fact that Tom's story changed, it feels to me, again, like you were saying, it's like he was just trying to protect his brother from getting the death penalty. Which, even if they aren't close, I'm shocked, actually, that, 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 listen... I don't, I'm not backing up the death penalty by any means, but I'm surprised that in that era that that held up. Because to me, it just feels so yeah. obvious that he was trying to change his story to save his brother from being put to death. You know what I mean? Yeah. It feels, again, you know, Paul's later story about like, well, I I hit him, but I didn't kill him, but it was manslaughter, but it wasn't. It's like, well, it was a little bit more than that. He was tied up. He was posed. The condom was in his hands. His face was beaten. Yep. His genitals were beaten. Like, this was not, you punched him in the head and you hit him at a wrong angle and he accidentally died. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, 100%. It's not that. It's not that. The additional details about them trying to, like, look for money in the house... I don't even, I don't know if I even buy it. I, I I feel, again, like there's no proof behind it. Again, it's interesting, like you brought up, that by California law, that would, that would kind of change the scenario. Victor Nichols. Here's my thing. He's giving his number out to people, which is already questionable. Him saying he knew Ramon was dead hours earlier and there being absolutely no follow through. That's a problem. Yes, because that absolutely feels like he was an accessory in whatever capacity. We may not even know what capacity he could have been there. We don't know. Do we? We We don't. don't. 
There were six pieces of clothes found. Feels like those could have been two from three men. Just saying. Sure. You know, speculating. Um, it just feels again... The specificities about the way Paul is being painted. The way that it's like, you know, he's a sociopath and he's an alcoholic and he's dangerous, but he's not able to kill. It's like, what? Yeah. Look, again, he may, you know, he's also admitted to at least hitting him hard enough that he would have died. He's admitted to that. So what does that tell us? But what's fascinating to me, and this is the point I've been trying to get to, what's fascinating to me is that Paul thrives in prison and Tom doesn't. And that, to me, psychologist hat on, this is the stuff that I live for, I'm fascinated by. Because Paul, as we know, has this rocky relationship with his father. Right? The father was not stable. Well, both of them did. But Paul was older. Paul was the one who was put at danger because of his father. Paul, you know, we can unpack that. I could unpack this for six hours. I won't. I will very quickly just say. It's just very interesting to me that he did so well. He thrived. He studies welding. He's winning awards for his writing. His writing attracts a wife. A wife, a woman who leaves her husband for him. Yep. And even still, when he gets out of that structure, that super closed in, very strict structure, yeah, he gets charged with another assault. Yep. And Tom, who doesn't do well in prison, who acts out, who's trying to escape. He marries the psychologist who's a lot older than him, which is also fascinating. Um, He gets out and he commits another assault. So what's interesting to to this for me as a, again, like a, just a psychology buff, what's interesting to, to this about me is that it's two brothers who were raised the same way or raised in the same household who... Grew up to not be close, were involved in a crime together, both go into prison to have two wildly different experiences, but they both go on to reoffend, and it's a sexual assault in both cases. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. And it's fascinating to me. It's tragic to me because if they had stayed in prison, then all of those victims would have been saved. And I think that's horrifying they did both at least paul we know absolutely killed ramon tom was involved to whatever level he was involved but paul admits it and again tom's story i think is probably closer to being true um but again it's just fascinating to me that when they both got out they both reoffended, and it was a similar charge That it's like, it does not matter what your experience is. It does not matter whether you do well or you don't in prison. In this case, does not matter. Sure. You know? Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Hate the gay panic defense. Stop it. 
Oh, I know. Uh, hate all of this. All of this story from Paul. I hit him, but I was drunk. Drunk's not really a defense. No. And and even if you were drunk, it's still your actions. I've never heard of somebody getting off of a murder because they were drunk. You don't get off. You'll still do time. Still your right. crime. You still did what you did. Um, Paul saying Ramon's death still affects him. I can't. I can't. You know, it's like, well, it also affects the person you killed and all of his friends and his loved ones and his family. So stop it. Yeah. The detail also, though, that this fan, Ryan Gene Kelly, who bought the house, was then shot and killed. I mean, yeah. Does that house still stand? I think it was some point after that that they, I think they took the house down. I'm assuming right. another house has been put back, back up. Though. Well, listen, Lauren Ash will investigate. Um, of course. But that also makes me go like, what's going on over there? Energetically, that feels. It, yeah. All right. Anyway. Yeah. I guess, long story short, way too late. I know that I've made so many giant uh, scattershot points here and none of them necessarily connect. But that's always the sign of a wonderful episode because for me, it's it's got me like, <laughs> it's got me rattled, it's got me riveted, it's got me all of these sure. things. I think for me, ultimately, what a tragic tale um, in so many ways. This person who clearly, again, feels like he was medicating with alcohol due to a deep heartbreak. We also know that his, he lost siblings, he lost his father, all of these kinds of things. And then the, the tale of these two assailants is just fascinating to me. When again, it's brothers from the same yeah. family who had the same upbringing, who were together that night and again, just handled things so differently in prison and then acted the same way out of prison. Now, granted, I also know that one took yeah. his own life and the other didn't, but you know what I'm saying. It's I don't know. There's something very interesting to me about that. And it also makes me wonder ultimately how much Tom was culpable. You know, he was 17 at the time. Yeah. So you could argue um, maybe that was the defining moment, sadly, for him. Maybe it was being sure, you know, having to help in that aftermath, et cetera. Who knows? But ultimately... The only real victim here, of course, is uh, Ramon, and it's so sad. Yeah. Um, but I'm so excited and, and happy to have learned more about his story and who he was. So I thank you for that. Hey, uh, I I no, I was going to say it was a joy, but it was not. Um, I'm always fascinated to learn about ones that I'd never heard of. I haven't obviously heard of all of them because that would be impossible. Um, but this, I thought at least a little bit. Yeah. Like, you hear, I mean, obviously Marilyn Monroe you hear about a lot, but like Black Dahlia, that sort of thing you hear about. But I had never heard about it at all. Same. And I'm like, how is this not a thing? Like, it's pretty big. It Well, and it I feels was really like, surprised by you know, it. this is also a gay man of color. So potentially that is why it has not been as big, which is not right. Sure. Well, and now is when everyone can start talking about and I, it. Yeah. Because we've brought it. And up. I hope so. I hope that that's the case because um, this story it has just as much space as any of the rest of them, obviously. Um, 
Yeah. No, it's, I mean, again, fascinating. Fascinating time. Yeah. A fascinating time in Hollywood, all of the above. But yeah, I'm so glad that you, I'm so glad that you chose this one. I love the old Hollywood. I don't love any of it. It's all death. But I, the old of Hollywood course. ones just fascinate me. Yes, because old Hollywood was such a very specific time that just feels like, oh, well, that wouldn't work that way now. No. You know, and it's just it's just so fascinating because old Hollywood always seems so much more glamorous than anything that exists now. And in reality, it wasn't. No. It was perceived no. that way. But it yeah. wasn't. Yeah. Um, well, listen, Christy Oxborough, thank you for your work. As always, hit it at the park. 12 out of 10. No, no surprise to me. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to say this. Thank you to you for the placement of that squishmallow behind you, because every once in a while you move and I get this cheeky little smile at me. It's adorable. For those who don't know, I've started using very large squishmallows as throw cushions on my couch. I lean into them. Yeah. It feels like a Tempur-Pedic pillow. That's Eloise. She's yeah. like a rainbow octopus. Mm. I love her and I love it. Thank you. It's the little smile for She's me. very cute. Um, yes. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. We so appreciate you listening to this and any episode of the show you listen to. If you haven't already, please give us a follow on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter, at Not Detectives. And of course, if you'd like some more content, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. We do four bonus episodes a month, live monthly Q&As, and you can take part in a monthly bonus, uh, I'm so, so sorry, monthly poll where you can vote on an episode that we cover on this main feed of the podcast. Check that out if you would like to learn more about that. And of course, the only place for official True Crew, again, the Prosecco's merch. taking over. The tr You're official okay. True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. So check that out. There is some very exciting holiday merch coming. I cannot reveal anymore. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? Oh. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Mystery at Mile Marker 45. That's correct. It is the first of the brand new Netflix Unsolved Mysteries episode. This is the one that many of you took place, uh, took part in a, a poll we did on Instagram. Yeah. We said, hey, which of the first three uh, do you want to hear the most? This was the one by a landslide. So we will be covering yeah. that next. Fo so uh, tune in for that. Um, until then, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Dave Grohl. Good night, Love is Blind cast. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. 
If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.